We are picking up today with a series that we departed from several months ago before you were encumbered by a global pandemic. You may remember that we were working through the book of Hebrews. We've taken several months off to address various spiritual concerns that have confronted us during these days. And also now, Hebrews is still a very present word to us, one that applies to us in our own situation. We are arriving today in Hebrews 11. This is where we broke away. We're reading verses 1 through 22. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven and many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named." He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is the word of the Lord. We got to do that again, even with face mask on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
And Father, we do come to your word this morning, and we come with anticipation, because it is by your spirit that you give us understanding of all that you have revealed, and your promises that through your Son, you teach us and instruct us and guide us into all truth. And so we confess our faith this morning that the teacher is here and that he's calling for us. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several years ago, I signed up to run a half marathon over Thanksgiving with my dear friends Robbie and Meredith Williams. The race was in the mountains of North Georgia. We were visiting Melissa's family, so it was a short drive from Atlanta. The race was on a rocky and hilly trail through Unicoi State Park. It hurt far more than I ever anticipated. It's one of the first awakenings that I was not the young man I used to be. It required way more of my body than I ever expected. My training regimen in Florida had not prepared me for hills, if you can imagine that. My knees were particularly unhappy with the decision I had made three months before. My mind wavered back and forth, deciding whether to agree with those knees. But suddenly, as the race began to wound down, they didn't have the trail well marked, and so we didn't know exactly where we were in our mileage. But we rounded a corner, and there was the finish line. I promptly lengthened out my strive to make a good show of it for all the people there. And then I noticed as I turned towards home that there was a race official standing there. And he was directing people to go to his left. The massive problem was that the finish line was to his right. It was only 100 yards away. And I can't tell you how desperately I wanted to be done. He was directing people to the left and saying, just three miles more. And I remember arguing with him slightly. We've already done that portion of the trail. He said, no, up that way. Certainly he had made a mistake. I had no clue there was more race coming. I thought I was done. Emotionally, mentally, physically, in every way, I was done. Completely exhausted, unprepared for this race. I was at my end, and I wasn't even close now to being finished. Those three miles, I won't further describe. And at some point, though, in the Christian life, we face that same type of exhaustion. Frequently, Christians don't like to speak of it. They feel some shame. But there is a fatigue and frustration. There are disappointments and discouragements. There are setbacks and sufferings that we simply aren't prepared for in life that encumber all of our lives. They wear us down, and in the end, it puts a great deal of pressure on our faith. We've seen this dynamic in the book of Hebrews. These early Christians, most likely living around the city of Rome, they had started strong. We learned this at the end of chapter 10 and verse 32, that they had given an extremely strong confession of their faith. They were obedient to God. But now, due to certain social pressures that had begun to arise, most likely under the reigns of Claudius and Nero, they were beginning to sputter. And they were asking a question. Out of their fatigue, 
In their exhaustion, it's clear that there was a question they were asking, and it's a question that will confront you and I on multiple occasions throughout our Christian pilgrimage. And the question is simply this, is it all really worth it? Is it worth the pressure? Is it worth the disappointment? Is it worth the discouragement? And you can look at the book of Hebrews as a sermon that's designed to speak directly to that question of, is it worth it? Because our fatigue, what it causes us to do, we lose sight of our privileges, then we grow indifferent to those privileges, and ultimately, we then become calloused to those privileges. This callous takes on a few different shapes. Some simply retreat entirely from the Christian faith, wanting nothing more to do with it. Others become preoccupied with worldly things, perhaps keeping a foot in one canoe and one in another. And then some others take a different tact, and that is that they just retreat into a stoic and kind of distant orthodoxy where they remain Christian in every visible sense, but their hearts have become hard. Whatever the case, it's not what God desires from us. And so the question that presses us this morning is how do we counter that fatigue and that exhaustion that will set in across the journey of the Christian life? And Hebrews 11 provides a shockingly simple answer. Two words, by faith. You may have noted how many times it was repeated just in the first half of the chapter. We're going to take two weeks to work through this chapter to define what faith is and what a true and living faith looks like. Hebrews 11 is a history. It's a series of biographies, some that you're familiar with, some perhaps that you're not. And in verse 2, what we learn that faith has always been the way in which human beings commend themselves to God and are counted righteous before God. Faith in God's covenant promise that there's one means of salvation from beginning to end after the fall. It is by faith. And in verse 6, we learn that without faith, it's impossible to please God that we can't. And these men and women that we have in front of us in Hebrews 11, it's important to remember that they're far from perfect. They are actually quite some cast of characters. But what they did and why they are commended to us in our own fatigue and in our own exhaustion is that they countered their difficulties they countered their exhaustion. They countered their fatigue by faith. And so what's critical for us this morning, if faith is the way that we please God, it is to consider very closely this faith. And we're going to look at three things this week. We'll consider the challenge of faith. We'll consider the fruit of faith. And finally, we'll look at the effect of faith. We'll then expand on further themes next week. But first, in verse 1, we discover the challenge of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's a definition of faith, and there's two parts to it. The assurance of things hoped for, and then the conviction of things not seen. So first, we are told that faith is being assured of things that are future, that are hoped for. In other words, faith embraces things that lie in the future. It's closely tied to hope. 
If you turn with me to verses 11 and 12, we see an example of this. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. The promise was made to Abraham that he would have children that would number the sands upon the seashore and the stars in the sky. I can only imagine at that moment what Abraham was thinking, that he was half dead, that his wife was past childbearing age. How was God to make good on this? It's remarkable in Genesis 15 when we read that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was laying hold of a promise that was future, that his descendants would become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And yet this land that was promised to them would actually encompass the earth as well. That this was the promise that Abraham looked from at afar, and he grasped it, and he held tightly to it, and he entrusted himself to God. His faith was a form of hope, and he was assured of these things. Now, the second half of the definition is important as well. We're told that faith is then the conviction of things not seen. Obviously, if it's future things in which we're hoping for, these things are not there for us. They're not tangible for us, that we have to receive that promise and that hope by faith. In other words, faith takes hold of things not seen. It takes God at his word, and it trusts that he doesn't lie even when our experience doesn't match up and we don't fully understand, we entrust that God will be faithful and he'll fulfill every one of his promises. John Calvin, the Genevan reformer, captures this beautifully in nearly a sermonic moment in his commentary. Listen carefully to this. Eternal life is promised to us, but it is promised to the dead. We are told of the resurrection of the blessed, But meantime, we're involved in corruption. We are declared to be righteous, and yet sin dwells within us. We hear that we are blessed, but meantime, we are overwhelmed by untold miseries. God proclaims that he will come to us immediately, but yet he seems deaf to our cries. Friends, this is the challenge of faith. The dichotomous experience that we have in which God makes promises to us, and yet our present experience says something else. And this is why faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And that's the challenge that we face in daily life, is believing that the promises of God are trustworthy and true. That when God promises to remit your sins and remove them as far as the east and the west through Jesus, you can trust him. That when God promises that he will take you and all those who have believed in Jesus, that he will take you out of your grave and raise you into a new world, you can trust him. That these are the promises that are solid and sure. And yes, we may not fully understand and we're told that we do not see, but this is what faith and hope do. They entrust themselves to the promises of God addressing the great challenge of faith. Second, 
Across these 22 verses, we also see the fruit of faith. That is what a living faith produces. Chapter 11 is filled with incredible and vivid examples, illustrations, you can say. We're going to look at three of these. If you turn with me first to verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. It's referring to the very first pages of the Bible, Cain and Abel, the first sons of Adam and Eve. And Abel makes his offering to God, and it's accepted. It was the offering that God had commanded. Cain then makes his offering to God, but he decided to worship God according to his own design and his own plans. He brought an offering that wasn't pleasing to God. His offering was not accepted. He then became jealous of Abel, of righteous Abel, because Abel was a man of faith and Cain was not. Cain made God after his own image. Abel listened and obeyed God faithfully and offered his worship to God in the way that God had prescribed, in the way that God had revealed. And friends, this is the first example of the fruit of faith that the sacrifice of praise that we offer to God must be brought to him in the way that God prescribes. And in the entire book of Hebrews, this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving must come through a mediator, that we cannot bring our sacrifice of praise to God on our own and by our own judgments, that our worship only ascends to God and is received by him through Jesus. And so our worship is a fruit and product of faith as we look to Jesus who sits at God's right hand. Verse 7 continues this. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah believed God's prophecy about a coming judgment, that the world had been so overwhelmingly overtaken by human sin that God was going to purge it of that sin and start with a new family. And so what Noah does in response to the prophecy of God is he constructs an ark. He begins building. You see that Noah didn't just intellectually agree It didn't remain a systematic proposition neatly tidied away in a theology book. That wasn't Noah's option. If Noah was to believe the prophecy, it meant that he had to begin going and chopping down trees and planing boards and fastening them together and then bringing his household into the ark and everyone looking at him like he was a crazy man and some fool. This was how Noah's faith produced fruit. The fruit of it was an activity, an obedience that entrusted himself to God. This construction project that he undertook was by faith. Verse 8 through 10, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. This one Old Testament professor 
who on the wall behind his desk had four pictures of the desert. One friend was in the office and asked him what the pictures were because they were of nothing especially descriptive. It just looked like four pictures of sand. The professor explained that these photographs were taken from the former city of Ur where Abraham had lived. And they were directed to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west. And he said, I use it to remind myself of what Abraham saw. And when Abraham left the comforts of Ur, this is what was out in front of him. He had the promise of God that the land of Canaan and all the world belonged to him. But he had no certainty that the world was a desert out in front of him. And there were different people occupying that land. How was God going to overcome all of this? How was God going to make his promise true? All things Abraham would have considered. And yet Abraham left. He got up. He constructed his tents and brought his family to the land of promise. He acted on the promise, a future promise, in the present. And friends, this is the fruit of a true and living faith. Is it grabs that future hope and brings it into the presence in an activity and obedience that yields itself to God. It's the fruit of faith. And finally, in verses 13 through 16, we see the full effect of faith. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared for them a city. Our faith, the full effect of it, is that it sets us apart from the world The sermon says that we become strangers and we become exiles. Why? Because we're seeking a better country, something that's held out for us in hope. We're citizens of another world. God is preparing a city for us. And that city, we're told in the book of Revelation, will descend from the heavens and it will encompass the earth and the earth will be remade and refashioned and sin will be purged and death will be dismissed and all evil will be brought into judgment. That's what is out in front. And our citizenship today, even though you don't see it, even though you always don't fully experience it, is in that heavenly city, that that is your proper home. And the full effect of faith, when we own that citizenship, we recognize that we are strangers and we are exiles. And what that means for us is that there's something always slightly uncomfortable about life in this world. There is something that is out of joint for us because we're longing in hope for the world made right, creation corrected, where we receive all the glory of God and the things that he's made and we hear them appropriately and we respond to God and we no longer have a half-hearted devotion to him. 
And so the world is out of joint. After graduating from high school, I was bound to Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. But one of the dynamics that played itself out was that Furman had a delayed start. And so all the friends that I had graduated with, they left town. They were gone. And I was left in town with really no one to associate with. I was determined not to be that guy who went back to his high school and hung out. Didn't want to do it. And so I was between two worlds for three and a half weeks, college-bound, belonging somewhere else, but yet at home, belonging nowhere. That's the story of our Christian existence. Yes, we live in this world, and we have responsibilities inside of this world. We care for this world. And yet this world is not our primary or fundamental home. Our citizenship is in another place. And that other place will come and remake this world into what it is properly to be. And friends, we experience this tension in every endeavor that we undertake in life. You will feel it in your neighborhoods. You will feel it as your neighbors observe the ways that you raise your kids. You will feel it in your politics and in the ways as a Christian that you should engage in that sphere. You will feel it in your marriage. You'll feel it in your workplace. You will feel it in your financial decisions that you're a stranger and an alien as people look at you as if you're weird. You will feel it in the way that you prepare yourself for death. Because of our unique convictions of what God has done in Jesus and all that he promises us and all that is before us in hope and in faith, it makes every aspect of the Christian life different. And sometimes we retreat from that, and we no longer count ourselves as strangers and exiles. And we make this life perhaps too comfortable. But friends, this journey of faith calls you out of that. It calls you to something better, that God has something else out in front of you. We see the world differently as we live by faith. And friends, it is this faith that sustains us. It's a buoy in the midst of suffering and exhaustion and fatigue. And we can meet the challenge of faith, the hope set before us, and the things that are unseen. And we can invest ourselves in them. And we can see the fruits of faith being born in our lives, and we can accept the full effects of faith. And we do so gladly because the pioneer and author of faith, Jesus himself, has gone before us. And because he is up from the dead, every one of these promises are guaranteed. They're sealed to you, and they're true. We use sacraments like baptism and the Lord's Supper to bring those experiences and seal them to our hearts and to remind ourselves that these promises are true and bring ourselves into participation in those promises. Friends, that is the life of faith, a constant rigor in which we look to God from all of our weakness and all of our dependence, and yet we answer the question, is it worth it? And we answer that question by saying, yes, he is worth it. He guarantees it, and he will not fail. So take up the challenge of faith.
Let's entrust ourselves to him. Let's pray. Father, we confess all of our weakness. We're prone to exhaustion and fatigue, and we retreat from the simple rigors of faith. But you stand to help us. You grant us your spirit and all your good promises that have been sealed through Jesus. And so we look to you for strength. Grant us to believe what is not seen. Grant us to hope for what lies in the future. And may we then act on it today believing and trusting every word you have spoken. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.